Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Trump wins. And remember, the, the, there are two rules of Trumpism. I have been sharing this since Donald Trump ran for office the first time. There are two rules of Trumpism. The first rule is that Trump wins. The second rule is that a deal can always be made as long as it adheres to the first rule of Trumpism. That has been as true as the day is long. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's happening, everybody? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Live stream, go and rumble, YouTube, Facebook, even though Facebook is awful. It is all there. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. The numbers do indeed speak for themselves. The numbers state that Trump, this was 93% of the vote counted, that Trump has uh, 54%. 54.5%, and Haley has herself 43.3%. Now, what's, what's interesting to note uh, about this, 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 this number is, is that when you look at it, you look at that spread, and you say that spread is uh, 11%. And you say, okay, Trump won by double digits. That's a fine win, a good win. Take double digits. Haley had her, her shot in New Hampshire. More th- thoughtful or thinking themselves as independent uh, type voters. This is this is her moment, and she lost by double digits. That's that's certainly a way to take it. The other way to take it is to take a look at the New Hampshire polling, like we did yesterday, and you realize that the real clear politics average had Trump at fifty five point eight percent. And Haley at 36 and a half. Trump came in at 54 and a half, and Haley came in at 43.3. Well, 55.8 to 54.5. Ah, uh, that's dead on. That is the second time it's been dead on, but it was dead on because there were three polls that took place in the last two days, or the two days before the primary, that put Trump over 60%. So those polls were certainly off because Trump's number was, I mean, it it, it raised the average to get to being accurate, but I think it would have been accurate anyway. Trump uh, at 55.8 was the polling. Trump comes in at 54.5 in the reality. Half the party's with him. No matter how you want to twist it, turn it, move it, cajole it, uh, do whatever you want to do, kitten. Half the party is with him, and that's okay. That's where you're at. Look at this Haley number one more time. Oh, don't get angry with me. I look at numbers. 43.3. The polling said 36.5. 43.3. She gets to say she outperformed. Now, you might say, Tony, that don't matter worth a damn, kitten. It doesn't matter. It's over, Johnny. This whole thing is done, finished, complete. It's over. Over? Did you say over? 
Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! That's it. Over? That's a solid point, Senator Blutarski. It is a solid point that it is not over uh, until until uh, uh, we decide it is. But politics is 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 different than real life, and uh, for the most part, it's over. But you can't get away from that, now can you? I mean, you may want to, and I get it. And 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 I'm not arguing that Nikki Haley's road isn't just not incredibly hard. It's insane. But holy McMackerel, she gets to say she overperformed. And therefore, she might actually be able to keep some money rolling in to get her to South Carolina. She needs South Carolina more than she needs oxygen. We know this to be true. And there has been no polling change in, in, in South Carolina. We deal with the same numbers that we have always been dealing with, which have, and the real clear politics average, Trump 52, Haley 21. That, kids, is a 30-point spread. So even if we want to argue, and the Haley team wants to argue, that they, they overperformed, because remember, politics is always an expectations game. You'll notice that you're not getting from me uh, what you may be getting from, from, from others, which is up, it's over, it's all Trump, Trumpy, Trump, Trump, Trump. I believe in the necessity of the breakdown. It's incredibly important to see what happens, what's going to happen, what people are going to say, how it's going to get responded to. That way you're fully prepared for whatever comes at you. I think that is important. I think that not enough people do it, and I'll be good and damned if I'm one of those people. I'm doing it. 30 points is 30 points is 30 points. So even if Haley outperforms and she's, you know, it outperforms by seven, you mean in her home state she only loses by 23? Now, I don't have uh, right now some polling data uh, about Nevada, and I don't even think Haley's trying for Nevada, but I want you to work through these numbers. Because people are trying to find a lot of different ways for this to be spun well for Haley. And I take a look at everything. I'm like, how does this play out? I mean, if you listen to Nikki Haley, this race, as we said, or as Senator Blutarski said, far from over. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory tonight. He earned it. And I want to acknowledge that. Now, you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves, saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. If you say so, but for you, South Carolina could very well be last in the nation. She went on to say there are a dozen states to go. Yes, yes, uh, uh, about four dozen, because there are 48 states left to go. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that you will hear regarding uh, Haley's stance and Haley's position is that the Democrats crossed over. 
you will hear that Democrats crossed over and 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 they voted uh, for her. So you see, you can't uh, trust the, the 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 whole thing. I want to break this down into some component pieces because that argument I think is very very strange. And I don't think that argument does Donald Trump nor Trump supporters very well. I think it actually is a backfire argument. In New Hampshire, there are people who changed their registration to Republican to vote in in the primary for Nikki Haley. You see, that's what they did, and that's why the number was so close. It's much further. That's an argument for why Nikki Haley is a better general election candidate. Don't forget... You have to win in November. Have we forgotten? Are we so focused on the primary that we forgot that we have to win in November? Like, I hear this from Rona McDaniel, the head of the GOP. Well, one thing I will say about the whole field of candidates that have run for president on our side, I commend them. They've been great. This has been a great contest. But I think there's some history that was made tonight. We have never had a nominee in our party that has uh, won without winning both without winning either Iowa or New Hampshire. Donald Trump is the first ever to win both. Uh, I'm looking at the math and the path going forward, and I don't see it for Nikki Haley. I think she's run a great campaign. But I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. First, Donald Trump is the first non-incumbent ever to win Iowa and New Hampshire. I didn't know that stat. That's that's crazy. Like, that's an amazing number. Like, wow, there's been a lot of elections. But here's the conversation, Ronan McDaniel. You should be fired. You think this is about getting Haley out of a race so we can unite around Trump? What have you done in the 50 states to ensure the lawyers are already preparing for whatever Michigas goes forward? That Michigas is uh, the Yiddish for BS. What have you done to ensure you don't get screwed like you did in 2020? You're the one saying you got screwed. What have you done? And where has the Republican Party been to ask this question? You think that the issue is some guy in New Hampshire changed his registration to vote for Haley? That's the issue? Are we all freaking deranged? That's nothing. You think that, well, you see, that's why Haley got so close. Could we get serious for a second? Could we have a moment of agreement? And the moment of agreement is, if you think there were shenanigans in 2020, and you and I may differ on where the shenanigans were and what the shenanigans were, this, that, and the other, the issues, the problem, what some people would describe as straight-out theft, what have you done, what has the Republican Party done, to ensure they're prepared to fight in 2024? You're talking about some person in Nashua who decided to change their registration. You see, that's the problem, Tony. No. If anything, if I'm the Haley team, I use that as the example of why I'm the better general election candidate. Because after all, it's about winning. Yeah, you got to win the primary, but you then got to win a general. And Donald Trump is tougher to get over the hump of a general than Nikki Haley is. The numbers show that. This is a unique moment of people not actually recognizing what it is that they're saying. And how these things can be spun. Nikki Haley can't actually turn this, I think, into momentum, however. And certainly Republicans have a couple of built-in, 
opportunities here more than ever before. And those opportunities are being given to them by Joe Biden when you hear things like this. We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the men in America unless you want to get the benefit. All right. What are you looking at me for? I don't know what the hell the man said. Uh, Then again, he doesn't know what he said. Joe Biden is imminently beatable. This is exactly what Dean Phillips, the congressman from Minnesota, the Democrat who's running for president, has been saying. He got 20% of the vote in New Hampshire. By the way, Biden wasn't on the ballot because New Hampshire went first and the Democrats said you're not allowed to go first. South Carolina goes first because, you know, equity or whatever it is. So Biden wasn't on the ballot. So instead he was a write-in and he got over, he got like 60 some odd percent of the vote as a write-in. Can you imagine you wrote in the name Joe Biden? You wrote that in? You, you, you did that seriously with a straight face and everything. That's, that is quite incredible. Did people clearly come over to vote for Nikki Haley? Yes. That is not proof that Nikki Haley is unpopular, but rather could be proof that Nikki Haley would be a better general election candidate. Now, you say to me, no, Tony, it has to be that she's unpopular because within the Republican Party, her number would be much, much lower. Yeah, very, very possibly. Maybe, but the other side of that coin is by doing so, the argument is, well, this hurts Trump because it makes the race look close. I thought the Democrats wanted Trump. It seems obvious that the chattering classes desperately want it to be Trump because they think Trump is the most beatable guy. That's why they've been pushing for the last two years that he's a dictator, that he's a threat to democracy. I mean, you understand that they at MSNBC and CNN and the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post, they've been sowing the seeds of serious, serious violence. We're not, we're not saying anything new to anybody here. How many times are you going to tell America that guy's a threat to democracy? That guy's a threat to democracy. They're a threat to democracy. The whole idea of uh, the whole Republican Party is MAGA, right? Make America great again. And um, it's a threat to democracy. How many times do you think that gets said before somebody says, I got to do something about this threat to democracy? Oh, if we don't understand yet what the, the level of irresponsibility from the entire staff there, uh, air staff at MSNBC and CNN, we, are uns- we don't know anything. But if the objective is to go against Trump, one would not do anything to stop Trump from getting elected. So again, I argue that this idea of they all switched over doesn't make sense. They switched over to stop Trump. They want to stop Trump, but they want to fight Trump because they think Trump is the easier beat. Even the numbers show that if we are to believe uh, the, the, the polling numbers, Haley wins in a general election by a greater margin than, than, than Trump does. And Trump, in, in the vast majority, there might be a poll or two out there where he didn't, but in the vast majority, he has uh, exceeded Joe Biden. I don't think Trump people, Trump supporters, or the Trump team should be using this argument of switching over. I think under any level of questioning, it kind of falls apart. And nor do I think that Trump needs to go down the road uh, of, of attack. 
to tell you, it was very interesting because I said, wow, what a great victory. But then somebody ran up to the stage all dressed up nicely <laughs> when it was at seven. But now I just walked up and it's at 14. But, but she ran up when it was seven. And, you know, we have to do what's good for our party. And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win. She lost. And, you know. Yes, she did. And I think that if you're going to do the unity thing post Ron DeSantis in Iowa, you might want to stick with that because I think that actually worked for you. But he's going after Haley like it's his job. Now, there's an argument there. You haven't won until you won. The other side of that coin is you won. Act like it. I don't know if that one's going to hurt him as much. What I do know is that Haley's path is beyond tiny. Can she play spoiler? Right now, I don't even see that possibility. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Look, I I host the largest cigar and bourbon review radio show in the country uh, called Eat, Drink, Smoke. I I pay attention to what's going on uh, in in, in the world of cigars. I don't always um, pay attention to what's going on in the world of, of cigarettes. I, I don't, but this is, Zinn is a, is like a pouch, right? It's a nicotine pouch, like a, I guess it's like chew, but without the chew, Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, good to be with you. And now Chuck Schumer, uh, the, the Senate Majority Leader, Democrat from New York, who has the kind of voice that, that makes you want to, um, I don't know, uh, give up the nuclear secret so it'll stop. He's going after Zinn. It's for people 21 and older. I don't know if they market to, to, to kids. I, I would certainly believe not at this stage. It, 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 it's a problem for children and it has to stop. Why is it that every time a product comes to market that is, is, is focused on helping people not smoke, which they're told is bad, it's very bad, um, this government goes after those people. Why is that? Time and time and time and time again. They they go after the thing, the group, the organization, the company that that is trying to help people not smoke. It's ridiculous. Yet it continues to happen. So Schumer wants uh, a crackdown, a federal action on these uh, Zinn pouches. I know zero about Zinn. I don't know a thing about it. I smoke cigars, all right? I, I smoke cigars uh, enjoyably, and I'm building a whole studio to be able to smoke while I do the show and do my, my other show. That's because it's, it's, it's just how I live. It's my thing. 
Everyone's got their own thing. I, I, I take all the risks, and cigars are not cigarettes. Very, very different. There's no inhaling. I've got FDA studies. I can have this conversation. You've got other issues, but not that. Not, not the inhaling issue. If an adult wants to take something, they can take something. Why can't an adult have this? Because children might do it. Once again, the federal government overstepping. What I want a federal government to do is actually focus on the things that it's supposed to, like Article 1, Section 8. And when it comes to foreign policy, actually protecting American interests and American lives, which is not happening under the Biden administration. Noah Rothman of National Review with the latest on that. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I don't know if there's any question to whether or not Joe Biden's policy in the Middle East has done us damage. Whether Joe Biden's foreign policies in general have done us damage. Let's go back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let us discuss the Chinese weather balloon. Did we forget that we allowed this balloon to traverse the nation? Not only did we allow it, We never got the full story until recently that they knew it. They knew where it was. They knew it was coming. And their objective was to not tell us. It took two guys in Montana who happened to look up in the sky and say, Tommy, Tommy, what is that? I don't know, Paul, he looks like a balloon. Tommy, that's a big ass balloon, Tommy. I mean, I mean, I've seen some balloons in my days. I've had some birthday parties. That's a big balloon. You sure, you really are right. That's a huge balloon. We should call somebody. You know what? You know what? Call Billy down at the police department. He'll know what it is. He'll know what to do. And that's how they figured out there's a damn balloon that came from China. And they knew when it launched and they knew how it traveled and they could have shot it down anytime. Oh, but they couldn't shoot it down over Montana because as you know, all the people would get harmed. Then you take a look at October 7th. And then you take a look at the Houthi rebels engaging in full-on attacks on tankers, on cargo ships, the Iranians doing the same. And all of a sudden, there's a question about who controls the navigable seas. I'm Tony Katz. As I said, good to be with you. Noah Rothman joins us right now from National Review. Follow him on the exit. Noah uh, C. Rothman, you write about this more uh, than, than than most and, and following uh, a lot of this on, on the national security side and really a, a conversation about foreign policy in, in general. We have had agreements and disagreements. Uh, this w- w- was was you, Joe Biden's provocative weakness. As I understand you, Noah, you're taking the point or, or, or the position that the biggest issue with Joe Biden's foreign policy is that Joe Biden is unwilling to have a foreign policy that has any concreteness. Am I off base in your understanding? I would amend slightly because I do think Joe Biden has a foreign policy. It's a profoundly dovish foreign policy. I think he is even more so than Barack Obama committed to American retrenchment by which I mean withdrawing from a lot of the traditional commitments 
that the United States as the global hegemonic power has all over the world. That has been his policy. And that is provocative. I think he has demonstrated a willingness and intention and a, and and actually a, a, a efficacy in executing that imperative, just withdrawing from uh, hotspots in the world or where we have obligations and creating power vacuums in our wake. And that is provocative. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. That which we lose, someone else gains. And a lot of uh, revanchist, revisionist powers, Iran, Russia, a variety of other um, uh, extranational groups, transnational terrorist groups, they see an opportunity, an open window. It's not going to be open forever, and they're making the most of it. So this was an argument made, Noah, uh, when President Barack Obama went on what, what many called that world apology tour, right? He's in Egypt and other places, and he's, he's apologizing for America's actions. He's really apologizing for America's might. And the argument was that while maybe in the United States that is seen as humility in other cultures, other nations, other uh, political philosophies, that is seen as weakness and something to take advantage of and exploit. I think we have seen that the desire to take advantage of and exploit Joe Biden's weakness, this same exact kind of theory, uh, is going on in an unrelenting fashion. I think so. Um, there's something admirable and unique in the American character that it, it is an anti-colonial power. It has always been one. It does not want to maintain and preserve foreign possessions, foreign entanglements uh, for the sake of national prestige. As much as a very cynical reading of American foreign policy on the on the far right and in the progressive left uh, believe, um, the United States is not an imperial power. It has grand obligations across the, the planet Earth because we were bequeathed that obligation in 1945 uh, as a result of uh, the where the powers fell in the wake of World War II. It does us no good to bemoan the obligations that we inherited from the British, for example, with regard to, as you said in the, in the outset, preserving and guaranteeing the free navigation of trade lanes in, in the seas. That is the responsibility of the global hegemon. And the global economic market, the world market, which has only existed since 1991, this is a pretty new feature, it existed until 1914, took a big, long break, and then came back in 1991 and has produced unparalleled prosperity and a dramatic peace, a peace that the world had never previously known. Go look at how many people died in wars prior to the beginning of this century and the end of the 1990s. It was a lot more than we have today. As much as we think this the world right now is, is so unstable and there's wars everywhere and people are dying all over the place, that is an ahistorical reading of our current environment. Right now we have an unprecedented level of peace and prosperity across the planet, which has lifted billions of people out of poverty. It's a miracle. And anything that comes after it will be suboptimal relative to our current condition. So it's the sort of thing you should seek to preserve. And Joe Biden a, has very little interest in doing that. But so, so for, it, it's funny that you that you phrase it in that way. We have less war now. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, uh, you should check out his books, including "Unjust: Social Justice and the Unmaking of America." That's available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. Because what you would hear politically is withdrawal from Afghanistan, absolute failure, got Americans 
killed and left hardware by the billions for enemies to utilize. Uh, you could not deter uh, Russia from invading uh, U- Ukraine, and that has reached now levels of World War I uh, trench warfare stalemate, that this is going to be a war of attrition involving human bodies that Ukraine has to understand that it cannot win. And now you have Hamas with the attack on Israel on October 7th, and through Hamas, through Hezbollah, and through the Houthis, you have the United States at war with Iran because Iran is at war with us. Uh, people would look at a very askew at your statement that this has been a peaceful time. Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> and they're just wrong. I mean, it's an, as I said, it's an ahistorical perspective. Talk about World War One. You know how many people were in the trenches in World War One? Millions. There were millions of people in those trenches in the Somme. And there were millions of casualties in the First and Second World War. Tens of thousands of Americans died in Vietnam over the course of a decade. We've had nothing even remotely approaching that, to say nothing of uh, conflicts in the developing world. Major, major wars between great powers has been something that was almost academic up until very recently, when it has become an existential prospect. Uh, just if you look at only the body count alone, there's no comparison between the world of the American hegemony that has existed since 1991 and anything that came prior. And if you don't want to just look at casualty figures alone, you can look at GDP, expenditures, um, just the, the number of nations that are going to war with each other, nation states. Um, it just, nothing compares. So yes, I understand why people would want to think that they live in the end of history. It's a narcissistic view. It exists only with, it can survive only by discounting the record that we all inherited. Uh, And it actually exists to justify a lot of, I think, dangerous policy prescriptions that recommend, indeed, uh, support the kind of retrenchment that Joe Biden is engaged in now. This is not a democratic phenomenon. There are plenty of Republicans. In fact, the oldest species of Republicanism prior to the Reagan revolution was a quasi-isolationism that regarded America's oceans as uh, a guarantee of our ability to remain distant from foreign obligations. So uh, it's, I, not, it's not right, r- weird for Americans to retreat to that point of view. It's just wrong. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, this this idea of America as the he, uh, the hegemonic power. Uh, I'm going to try and rephrase that a little bit. In that, well, I can define it. I can define it in terms that are uh, like concrete. Let's start there. Let, let's start there, sure. and, and we'll see where we go. Global hegemony means um, the United States is the sole superpower, hyperpower. We used to say right in the in the wake of the end of the Cold War, because the United States is the only power on the planet that is capable of projecting sustained force, sustained, meaning over the course of months, even years, on the other side of the planet to a degree that would um, that would affect the kind of foreign policy outcomes that we would want to see, like, for example, remaking the face uh, of a nation state. The French can kind of do that. The British can kind of do that. Eh, not really, really in a sustained way. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians can project power across their borders. Can they project power across the planet Earth? No, they cannot. So that's what I mean by global hegemony. Well, let's now take it maybe as as it's seen under under Biden, because there is no projection. And what we have seen from the Houthi rebels in being able to take cargo ships, uh, take people prisoner, actually kidnap people. And these are not cave dwellers. These are well sophisticated, planned out attacks and the drops from helicopters and, and, and everything else. 
you're saying that what what Biden believes is in this in this dovish point of view that a level of diplomacy can actually bring these things to heal. And that is the show of American might as opposed to actual American might, which he's engaged in now with the United Kingdom in eight separate uh, uh, air raids, if you will, against the Houthis in Yemen that have produced zero results so when does he learn that the dovish approach is a valueless one and have we shown that the hawkish approach has changed anything well i think it's too early to judge what the hawkish approach is i mean we do have some signs right now that degrading the houthis capability to project power into the gulf of Aden and the red sea uh, are actually degrading their ability to project power. It's kind of what you would expect, whether it degrades their willingness to engage in these kind of piratical attacks, for example, and attacks on shipping uh, is another matter. They are well-equipped from Iran, and they show every indication of willing to expend all the all the ordinance that they've been bequeathed by their Iranian sponsors. That's something that we can do something about by taking those, those ordinances out. We can't necessarily degrade their ability to uh, execute these attacks if they want to execute them, unless we were willing to put boots on the ground in Yemen. We're not. Uh, but we can partially neutralize the threat to a degree that they just can't execute it. But the Biden administration will be unwilling to do what I think it needs to do, which is to uh, impose uh, more caution on their sponsors and stop the tempo of events, not just in Iraq, in Yemen, rather, but in Syria and Iraq, where U.S. troops and U.S. positions have been under sustained attack since 10-7, or this is an Iranian campaign, began on 10-7 with, as you say, the, their proxy in Hamas. And the only proxy that has been relatively quiet, and I say relatively advisedly, is the is Hezbollah. Um, and only because we've parked so many naval assets off the coast of the Levant in order to deter them. Deterrence isn't necessarily working against Iran, but it can. Uh, and it usually does when you hit them in the face. Uh, Ronald Reagan dropped a a series of Iranian warships at the bottom of the Persian Gulf in the 1980s. Uh, Donald Trump executed the strike on Soleimani in 2020. And in both occasions, you saw, you saw movement from the Iranians that communicate their willingness to de-escalate while just doing some space-saving maneuvers, like throwing some rockets at us. Uh, but it is nevertheless a de-escalatory posture. There are elements in the Iranian regime that know that if they got into a direct conflict with the United States, the Iranian regime would cease to exist. They don't want that. So they do exercise some caution when the costs of their campaigns become higher than they're willing to absorb. Right now, the benefits of this campaign is to force the United States to move assets around, to demonstrate that they can close off the Suez Canal to commerce whenever they want. Those are a lot of really tangible benefits for the regime. That's, Until we raise the costs, this is going to continue. This this is my point, that that the all of these actions, the idea that we can punch them in the face and make it stop, is predicated on the idea that we're willing to punch them in the face, and Joe Biden isn't. Thus, I discuss a, a weak foreign policy. Of course, they clearly do feel that they are emboldened and capable, and it is more than just the United States here. It is the world allowing this to happen. So when we go back to this concept that you bring up about being the world he hegemonic power, I think the only question left is, are we really, based on this philosophy, which seems to not only exist within the uh, Biden world, but also exists in serious pockets of the political right? Yeah, I think if we were, if I'd be very charitable. I, I do think there's a admirable quality to Americans generally who are reluctant to engage in the kind of behaviors and activities that aren't we need to engage in in order to preserve American geopolitical dominance. 
I don't think Americans really like having geopolitical dominance. They certainly don't like having obligations abroad, and they don't like being an imperial power. That's good. I mean, that's that's something that is noble and inherent in the American character. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be too abstract about it because I disagree with it. But it is nevertheless a laudable disposition. Problem is that none of our no no other American adversary, either our near peer competitors or rogue states like Iran and North Korea, share that objective or that enterprise. Um, and they make no bones about their willingness to coordinate in the open directly in the form of military exercises, selling each other arms, supporting each other's enterprises, supporting each other's destabilizing activities. They're all engaged in one mission, very overtly, even explicitly, to put an end to the age of American dominance. After that, they can work out all the problems that they have behind the scenes. But the first task is get rid of the United States make it retrench, make it withdraw behind its borders, sacrifice its allies, an ally here, an interest there, an objective there, and all of it culminates in the end of the Pax Americana. Um, that's not something Americans should look forward to. The world that awaits us on the other side of that looks a lot like the world that we got a glimpse of on 10-7. Uh, be- before I-, I let you go, and, 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 and I want to dig in a little bit, I only got about 60 seconds on the radio side here. Uh, I want to bring you to uh, last night, uh, the primary, uh, Trump uh, v. Haley, talk about two very different views of the world regarding uh, foreign, foreign policy. Trump uh, getting the 11 uh, point of victory. Uh, were I, uh, your take on whether there is still some rational path for Nikki Haley? Oh, I don't think so. I, I think this primary wraps up pretty quickly. But this is not something that I think Republicans should be celebrating necessarily. And the uh, Republicans who are interested in winning in November, um, New Hampshire looked a lot like the election in 2020 in microcosm. About 75 percent of Republicans turned out for Donald Trump. They made up 49 percent of the electorate and they're thrilled to vote for Trump. He mobilized a very similar uh the antonym, you know, the opposite reaction in his opponents, in the small number of Republicans who oppose him, who are dead set against not voting for him in November, by the way, if they mean what they're telling pollsters, and the independents and you know, the handful of Democrats who turned out to oppose him. He enthuses the people who oppose him as much, if not more, than the people who support him. I'm going to put uh, you right there. a long road to hoe. I'm going to stop you right there. Noah Rothman, National Review. I'm Tony Katz. Man, I, I went long. I went long with Noah Rothman, and I apologize for nothing. Um, people cannot act right on an airplane. I have a very disgusting story for you. Sorry to hear it. And the DEI hellscape. The University of Wisconsin Law. <laughs> Best of luck hiring a lawyer. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The president spoke to this last week uh, a little bit, too. He said, you know, he, he called out, he said to House Republicans, do you really want to actually fix this problem? Do you really actually want to uh, do the work that's needed 
to deal with the issue that we're seeing at the border? Do you really want to fix this immigration system? I'm adding on to what the president said, but Sorry. that's a question for House Republicans. I think we have proven, Republicans in the Senate and Democrats in the Senate, have proven that we actually want to work on this issue, uh, on this broken system. And so, look, if they are real about this, if they want to fix this problem, then they would get involved. They would get involved, but they haven't, right? You heard me say back at the end of uh, last year, they left in the middle of December while negotiations were happening with Republicans in the Senate and the Democrats in the Senate. So the border is a problem because Republicans bad. That is one heck of a take. You got to love Corinne Jean-Pierre. You got to love this spin. Hey, guys, is it is it election time? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, it is. Uh, well, we better start talking about the border. Uh, blame Republicans, okay? Just put that out there. Blame Republicans, and uh, that'll work. You got it, boss. And now, and now you see the rest. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Would love it if, if you would. I'll get into some more uh, of the border as I often talk border issues. But there is a... Serious issue at play going on with with airlines. As we are watching, more and more problems occur. There's a story about a, 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 a flight. This is a Delta flight. Where the plane, a, a Boeing, right? And, the, and we're, not, we're not talking about the problems with the Max 7 here. Where the window, basically the fuselage, blew out. And they knew they had issues. And these were the planes that uh, two of them crashed in a matter of, of, of was it months? And the plane was grounded because it had a, a serious, serious programming issue. And there's a problem with this plane. It can't be, it can't be denied and it should not be denied. The plane leaving out of Atlanta, it's, uh, it had a wheel fall off. It was taxiing on the runway. It was heading to Bogota, Colombia. A pilot from another plane saw the front wheel fall off, relaying to the tower um, that, the, that the plane lost a nose tire. The wheel and the tire. The whole contraption. Then you put to that that you have a flight to New York that was canceled after an alarmed passenger noticed that bolts were missing from the plane's wing. You can see out the plane, and sometimes you're on the wing. And there you are, and you're missing bolts, and they were like, ding, ding, you know, they rang the little bell. Pardon me, uh, uh, stewardess, it's flight attendant these days. Yeah, well, you don't have bolts in the wing, so I'll call you any damn thing I choose. God, what I would have given for that to be the conversation. They didn't take off. They didn't take off. What is happening? What is happening? Well, part of what is happening is the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby. You have this. The CEO who thought it was necessary um, to not only dress in drag, but to show it 
in, 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 in public settings. You ask yourself, Tony, seriously, what the guy likes to do in his own life has no bearing on what might be going on with a plane. What if the argument is perhaps we're focused on things that don't matter and we don't focus on the things that do matter and that leads to people dying? Certainly, we can point to Mossad. You take a look at Israel in the days before October 7th and the terrorist attack from Hamas, a terrorist organization, the murdering of 1,200 people, the killing of babies, the raping of women, setting people on fire, taking people hostages, putting them in cages. Hamas is a terrorist organization, and the world would be better off if they were destroyed. But when you take a look at the days before that, there was a big conversation in Israel about their Supreme Court and judicial reforms, and people were upset about this. But the truth is, the entirety of Israeli politics is a big, hot, stinking mess. And their Supreme Court is very, very, very strange. There, there's no constitution. The Supreme Court engages under a conversation of what they describe as reasonableness. That's not a standard. Reasonableness is nutty. But this is the way they do it. So part of what uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, was saying and others is that we, we got to have different standards. And oh, by the way, where do these justices come from? Right now it comes from the, the winning party. And oh, these people get to pick. And oh, this bar association gets to pick. Maybe we should uh, uh, change how we engage this process and who should have more of a say based on the election. Now, you can agree or disagree with these things, uh, but this is what was going on. And it is very obvious from the reporting and from other conversations that there were groups in Israel that should have been focused on what it is Hamas was doing in Gaza, but were rather focused on things like this. Focused in the improper places. Focused on domestic things, not foreign threats. It reminds you in some ways of what the FBI likes to focus on, which is not the threat internally, but whether or not the American citizen is the threat for their existence. And how many more times will we see how they've worked and kind of tried to manipulate into, well, setting people up? Literally, they see in so many ways the American is nothing more than Marion Barry, and we are the ones recognizing what the FBI just did and who they are, and they just set us up. That's a pretty good reference right there. Marion Barry reference. Uh, gone too soon. Gone too soon, former mayor of D.C. Oh, I'm going to get emails for that. When you're not focused on the topic, when you're not focused on the target, when you're not focused on the goal, what are you focused on? Well, if airlines are focused on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is bigotry, well, then what possibly or how possibly could they be focused on safety? What were they doing that they didn't notice the bolts missing on the wing? What were they doing where in their pre-flight check they didn't notice the loose tire? What was happening at Boeing that they didn't notice that quite literally a chunk of the fuselage could fly out? Oh, by the way, they knew there was a problem. They were going to deal with it after the flight landed. What?
You don't deal with that after the flight lands. Because if you do, you run the risk that nobody actually lands. They simply fall to the ground. This takes us to, uh, ta- was it tax prof blog, uh, blog? Uh, tax professor blog, Paul Karen. Wisconsin law schools, mandatory DEI trainings and academic freedom. This has been a conversation about medical schools as well, where in the, in the, in the medical schools, what, what you see is, is the taking uh, the Hippocratic oath and in doing so, the recognition, the recognition that uh, they practice medicine on stolen indigenous land. Well, of course you do. It's all stolen indigenous land. Every last bit of it is stolen indigenous land. Every last bit of every last corner on God's green earth is some stolen indigenous land. This is what you're focused on? I would like for you to focus on my pancreatic cancer if you don't mind. Uh, I'm not saying about me. I don't have pancreatic cancer. Thank goodness. Um, the focus is missing. I've used this uh, analogy. Now, this analogy comes from something my father used to say when I was a kid. My father, for as long as I can remember, would, would say, uh, you're, you're, in your, you're in your apartment, because for him, everything was based in New York and everything was an apartment. Um, garden apartment is usually the way he described it. I have no idea. I have never heard anybody since describe a, a garden apartment, but he always uses that terminology. So, something, something about Brooklyn in the 50s, kitten. I don't know what else I can tell you. Um, you're in your apartment. There's an axe murderer at the door. And they've got an axe and they're breaking down the door. They're going to kill you. He would, tell, he would go over this all the time. You go to the phone. Remember, no cell phones in the days. You actually had to have a phone sitting somewhere. And as you get to the phone, you pick up the phone, you notice out the window that the the streetlight is out and it's not safe for people to cross the street. For the liberal, what do you do? I swear to you, I grew up differently than you did. That, I was 10 I was 10, I was 11 when that conversation took place. What do, what, what, what do you do? The axe murderer is at the door, but the traffic light's out. I have applied that to what's going on in, in, in medical schools. The patient is in front of you, doctor, and the patient is going to die. You say to the patient, ma'am, we're going to take care of you. The patient says, I'm a man, not a woman. I identify as a man. Who do you think you are? I demand an apology. Do you treat the patient or do you apologize to the patient? Patient's going to die. Which one comes first? What matters more? And if the answer is not, well, you treat the patient. Then, there, then then, the answer is wrong. Well, what you would do is, no, there is, these are your choices. Apologize, the patient dies. Save the patient. You learn that, that, that some things don't matter. That some things, even if you decide they did matter, they have to be ranked. 
and someone's desire for pronouns don't matter as much as saving the life. It just doesn't. Who cares about your pronouns? Who cares? What you believe in, what you value is absolutely unnecessary. It creates a valueless proposition because nothing thrives and survives from it. Go back to this. According to the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative advocacy group, the University of Wisconsin Law School conducted a mandatory reorientation DEI session last week for which students had to fill out a, quote, race timeline worksheet with seven significant moments at least or significant life events around race and read a worksheet listing 28, and I'm quoting here, common racist attitudes and behaviors, including views like I'm colorblind and we have overcome. Well, if this is what the lawyers are focused on, how could they possibly be focused on my First Amendment rights? Because it's very possible I said something that offended them and they thought was bigoted. Now, if they're under the impression that if they think something I say is bigoted, that I shouldn't be entitled to say it, well, what value was their law school education? Then again, what education did they get if they were focused on this and not the imperative nature of the First Amendment? That offense to a subject does not mean that the subject is verboten. And I chose the German there on purpose. If you're focused on being a drag queen and dancing for your staff, how could you possibly be focused on the wheels of the airplane, the bolts in the wing, whether or not the door falls off? How How is it even remotely possible? You could be focused on the things that save lives. It's impossible. Thomas Sowell, the great economist, explains beautifully that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And if you're going to focus on dressing and drag and dancing, if you're going to focus on listing 28 common racist attitudes and behaviors, then there is no way you could be focused on my First Amendment rights and why they matter and why they should be defended even if you don't like what is said. Remember, Louis Farrakhan is a low-rent, Jew-hating, white-hating, woman-hating bigot. He has a right to speak as an American. He's disgusting. His words are despicable. He's called me a termite. He has the right to say it. The same rights he has is what ensures that I'm allowed to say he's disgusting. And rational people should want nothing to do with him. That, of course, doesn't apply to Congressman Andre Carson of Indianapolis, who considers him a friend and is happy to work with him. DEI prevents us from focus, and a lack of focus will get us killed because it misrepresents what is really important. Is it important to be good to people? Is it important to look at people for what they offer and not as some kind of subgroup? Absolutely. Too bad DEI only teaches people to look at what people are in a subgroup. This wokeness, this DEI madness is damaging and we see it everywhere. We see it everywhere. 
focus is necessary for professionals to be professionals, and we are in desperate need of professionals. You can't get them with the people we currently have in charge. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So one more airline story. And this story, um, Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, Ah, I made the pun, I made the pun, Uh, this is uh, from, uh, I think, the, the New York Post, excessively farting passenger forces American Airlines flight to turn around, that's a, it's an actual story. Um, this has nothing to do with, with wokeness or DEI. This just has to do with people being disgusting. And I believe it's part of this anxiety problem. This issue that we have in America where everybody is so wound, so tight, and everybody is so ready to be offended and so ready for the fight and so ready to think everything is, a, is, is the affront that they've, they've, they've lost sense of themselves and they've, they've lost the, the ability to, to, to rationalize, but rather they must demand that you acquiesce to them because whatever it is that they're going through is clearly the most important thing. American Airlines flight, this guy is muttering under his breath, maybe he had an altercation with some flight attendant or whatever it is, and he's like, uh, well, if, if you think that I'm rude now, check this out. And he starts letting loose like it's the campfire scene from Blazing Saddles. Thank goodness he wasn't Mongo. And it keeps going while they're taxiing and the guy's yelling at people, won't won't stop. And so the pilot's like, oh, we got a, a small problem. We're going to have to return uh, back to the gate. Uh, keys, please keep your uh, seatbelt fastened. And uh, so I, they all sound like that. That wasn't bad. That was, uh, okay. Well, no. Yeah. And so they get back to the to the to the gate, and they say to the guy, uh, "They need you outside of the plane for something." And he's like, "Huh?" And then he walked off the plane. He didn't even put up a fight. And then I don't know. Somebody lit all the matches, and they left. How does this happen? No, not that somebody may not you know pass. Uh, what is it? Was it? They pass the gas. That could happen. That's possible on an airplane. But to 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 want to disrupt, to want to annoy, to why, and and, and through a, a clear debasing of yourself, where does that come from? Uh, my argument is, is that it comes from a place of anxiety. It comes from a place of feeling so put upon, pressed upon. Everything going wrong in so many ways that you just have to, I was going to say, you just have to let it out. But clearly, it's enough. You'll just do what you want to do, and everybody's going to have to deal with you because you have to deal with everybody else's crap. I think it's anxiety. I do. Oh, by the way, put this guy to no-fly list and get me a private plane. I'm Tony Katz. Now, with that. So I 
had received a comment. As you know, uh, we've been doing some live streaming lately and some people uh, comment on on the live stream. You get a rumble uh, there. Just search for Tony Katz uh, or or, uh, even on on the YouTubes. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, uh, radio is, is my first love. Don't you worry about that, kittens. Uh, and, and, and this comment um, stated uh, that there was a lot of uh, MAGA anger. Let's make America great again. Anger towards Nikki Haley for staying in the race. And this guy uh, gives some reasons, which uh, I, I've already kind of dismissed. And then he says she, meaning Nikki Haley, is putting more of his, meaning Donald Trump's, cognitive decline on display. I'm telling you right now that I will not listen to anyone talk about cognitive issues if you're not going to talk about Joe Biden. If you're unwilling to know that that man is not okay, you're not a serious person, I will not be a part of it. Now, everybody wants to talk about cognitive this and cognitive that and aptitude tests. Nikki Haley, last night after losing in New Hampshire, she's like, yeah, let's do this. Trump, you have one bout of chaos after another. This court case, that controversy, this tweet, that senior moment. You can't fix Joe Biden's chaos with Republican chaos. The other day, Donald Trump accused me of not providing security at the Capitol on January 6th. Now, I've long called for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. Trump claims he'd do better than me in one of those tests. Maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. But if he thinks that, then he should have no problem standing on a debate stage with me. It's not a bad line. But this is, this is, this is a crazy way to choose a president with this whole conversation of competency tests. Nikki Haley can get away with it because Trump did confuse Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. He, he, he did it. And the whole senior moment uh, uh, comment uh, does hit. I don't think it moves anything in level of polling. That's not my conversation. My conversation is that I will not allow anyone to discuss competency without discussing Joe Biden. He was in Virginia. He was in Virginia... And the speech that he gave was surreal. Surreal. It was insane. Insofar as one could understand it. I put forth to you that it could not be understood. By any stretch of the imagination. I'm going to share a piece of it with you right now. You tell me what this is. This is Joe Biden at this event 
This is a 10-second clip. 10 seconds. Here you go. That wasn't the clip. I'm sorry. I played the wrong one. See? I was testing you. I wanted to make sure you were okay. Here you go. We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the men in America unless you want to get the benefit. I'm going to play it again. You tell me what it is the president of the United States, a man who can press the nuclear button, you tell me what he said. We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the men in America unless you want to get the benefit. Uh, This is also the speech in Virginia where he looked at Terry McAuliffe and said, and hello to the real governor of Virginia that said it, election denier Joe Biden. And Corinne Jean-Pierre was like, well, he was just making a joke. (laughs) Is that how I can spin it now? Election denial is a joke? And that's what it was when when Hillary Clinton did it and uh, Stacey Abrams did it? Okay, good good to know. When Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked in the press briefing today about what you just heard from Joe Biden, this is what she said. When you talk to the president afterwards, is he frustrated that he wasn't able to sort of deliver the speech as he intended? I mean, look, look, the president, from my view, and I think some of your colleagues uh, have written about this, it was a fiery speech. It was a deeply, deeply... Um, uh, impactful speech. Uh, you heard how the crowd reacted to the speech. Uh, it was a speech that I think landed in a way that talked about how this president and his entire administration is going to fight for women. And that is also important. It was fiery. It was fiery. Do we need to hear it again? We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable <laughs> lesson. Don't mess with the men in America unless you want to get the benefit. That's not fiery. That is a guy trailing off and falling to sleep in his mashed potatoes. It is what it is. You want to be angry with me? Fine. Be angry with me. What does that change? How dare you? That's ageist. Hold on a second. My name is Tony Katz. You bet your butt I'm an ageist. You better believe it. My father is 86. 86 years old. God bless him. I wouldn't let that man run the country. And he is a thousand times better than Joe Biden. It's my own father. Of course not. There comes a moment where it simply cannot be done anymore. There is reality. We have a strange thing in America. We all talk about how incredible it is that we can live to be older and the medical situation this and we can extend our lives and people are like, well, life expectancy is down. If you were to take away deaths during COVID, you wouldn't necessarily find the same number as you do. And so the life expectancy, I believe, over the next couple of years will go back up. I believe that number is, is, is a bit artificial when we've seen it go down. But no one ever discusses the fact that the problem with continuing to live is that you actually have to do it. 
and the physical ramifications, the mental ramifications, financial ramifications. Nobody wants to have the hard conversation. This stuff is rough. And uh, one of the things that Gen X has dealt with, uh, which which would have collapsed millennials and Gen Z, it, it, it would have. Watching your parents get to this place because they never watched their parents get to this place because their parents would have died. I mean, it's just, I don't want it for them, but you want life to be healthy and robust and strong and, and all these things. Joe Biden is neither healthy nor robust nor strong. He's not. You, you, you show me how he's got all that pep and he's running to the stage and to the microphone and then he naps and then he's not seen for days at a time and he's not working here and he's not doing this. It is clear that he is not up to the task, that this at this stage is just abusive what we're watching. That wasn't a fiery speech. That was a guy who didn't have it all together and cannot put together his words. He has an idea of what he wants to do, but he doesn't complete the sentence. He doesn't finish the subject. He can't. And why is that such a bad thing? It's not. I want to say for the record, allow me to be on record. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that he has reached an age where he isn't able to fully articulate in a way that is uh, that it has clarity a sentence. But if you were to talk to him one-on-one, you could get the gist of what he's saying and maybe he wouldn't talk so fast. Maybe, like, hey, repeat that. Hey, slow down, Grandpa. All those kinds of things. There is so nothing wrong with it. He doesn't walk with a walker. He doesn't walk with a cane. I can show respect for those things. The issue here is that he's president. And how dare America not have a standard on this? Yes, I'm an ageist. And if the octogenarian set doesn't like it, I don't care. I didn't say that we should now live in a world of soil and green. I'm not saying that you have no usefulness. One day I will be 86, oh please, in better mental and physical health than Joe Biden. I'm trying. I've been doing my stretches. So far, so good. I'm saying that maybe I won't have it to be president. And that's okay. Why can't we say that that's okay? Do I think Donald Trump is slipping? I think Donald Trump has made some slip-ups. I do. When you you confuse uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi for Nikki Haley, or or, or vice versa, uh, depending on how you want to say it, uh, I think I think you're doing yourself a, a, a disservice. I think it hurts. I think he's done this on a couple of occasions. There, there's no doubt that he has. But if you think that somehow these two are on the same plane of not being uh, 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 in, in, in control of their own faculties, well, you'd be ridiculous. You'd be ridiculous. It would be acceptable to say that I've seen these things in, in, in Donald Trump. To say that it's equivalent to where Joe Biden is and what we've seen from him over the last three and a half years, th- this, is, this is not a serious, this is beyond unserious. That's nutty.
and those people are nuts. So while we can have the conversation, I don't mind having the conversation, I'm not letting any of these MSNBC, CNN, uh, uh, national media uh, narratives uh, pushers tell me that Trump's not up to the task when they won't talk about Joe. But they'll be talking more and more about it because they're going to need a reason to replace him at the convention, which we should be clear is going to happen. Write it down. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So there was a moment during the primary coverage last night that uh, Newsmax is showing Nikki Haley's headquarters. And at Nikki Haley's headquarters, oh, this is so bad. I mean, if, if for, for, for Trump, this is like, you see this? This is what I'm talking about. When it comes to Nikki Haley, Tony Katz, that's me. Tony Katz today, that's the name of the show. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. They've got this big, big monitor. And the monitor is showing the returns. They're showing the coverage from CNN. Listen. Take a look at this. Uh, we have a shot of Nikki Haley's headquarters. Uh, there's the screen, um, CNN. Um, Rick, oh, that looks great. Are you surprised by this? Is anybody surprised? Unbelievably stupid. I, I, I just, I, I don't understand. I would blame the consultants. I yeah. just blame the consultants. Yeah. I saw that earlier yeah. in the evening. I thought, oh, they must be, they must have had a mistake and they must have changed it. But here it's, it still is. So this is a deliberate uh, act of a, of a candidate who does not know who her voter is. Rick Santorum hit it so on the head. And you're like, oh, come on. That's nothing. It's not nothing. It's, it's that kind of messaging. That gets you nowhere. Meanwhile, there's a bit of an update. Yesterday, I shared with you this guy who had uh, shared with you that this guy who had crossed the border, and uh, there are people there with video cameras doing interviews. And this guy, who's a Middle Eastern descent, grown man, jean shirt, jean jacket, glasses, he doesn't sound like a guy who's thankful to be in America. Oh, no, 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 no. If you are smart enough, you would know who I am. But you are really not smart enough to know who I am. But soon you're going to know who I am. Who is this jerk? So people started looking for who the jerk is. And uh, the answer is, it might be uh, this guy uh, right here uh, out of Azerbaijan who was uh, sentenced to 12 years in prison for terrorism. And... Arms trafficking. Mavsum Samadov. Maybe that's who it is. You could argue that looks like him. I, I would need some fingerprints. Is this who he just let into the country? And someone should ask the squad, is this the kind of open borders that you're looking for? Is this the kind of open borders that you have long desired.
because this is what you're going to get. Anybody who doesn't understand the threat that is Iran, the threat that is Hamas, the threat that is these terrorist organizations, it's uns- it, 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 you, you can't be this unserious. You can't be this unserious. So the, the, the race is going to move on to to Nevada and then South Carolina, and I will get into more of that. I'll actually get into that tomorrow because I got to do uh, for the radio folk because uh, we've been we've been live streaming the show. And we're getting we're, we're trying to get things ready for when the new studio is built and and everything else. This Wuhan COVID story. You want to talk about a story not getting enough play? The extent to which China and the Communist Chinese Party is guilty of, of lying, committing this fraud uh, against the world, uh, the levels to which Anthony Fauci is indeed guilty, and now you know that you had uh, uh, scientists working with the Chinese on viruses that seriously resembled SARS-CoV-2 and that money moved through EcoHealth Alliance to get to the Wuhan Virology Lab. You know it. You've got the documentation. Yeah, Fauci should go to jail. I've got that story uh, coming up. Find it all at TonyCats.com. I I have got it. Uh, And uh, I spoke to him a little bit earlier. Mark Lauder, the American First Policy Institute, who spent time in the in the Trump White House uh, and his take on what he saw in, in New Hampshire. I've got that coming up as well. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the value of digital health solutions in facilitating access to health services. While the emergency phase of the COVID-19 pandemic is now over, investments in digital infrastructure remain an important resource for health systems and for economies and societies at large. Like many countries, the European Union made significant investments in COVID-19 certificates to help people move around as safely as possible during the pandemic. You actually want us to believe that having a digital infrastructure that you have to basically utilize like a passport in order to be able to move around where you live is valuable? This is Dr. Tedros, uh, the Director General of the World Health Organization, the same World Health Organization that worked to cover up China trying to cover up what they did regarding COVID. And you actually want us to believe that a digital passport connected to our health records is necessary and good and valuable? Are you people insane? The answer is yes. Desperate on desperate on desperate to control your moves, control your maneuvering, to control your activities. They've made it quite clear that they want to determine how you move about. How much more do they have to do? Literally chain you to your desk? Because that's coming next. 
Tony, they're not going to really chain you to the desk. When you can't leave your house because they decide that your cold is not properly under under control, uh, what's the difference? No, 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 seriously, what's the difference? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, what is going on, everybody? 833-468-8669, 833-GOT-TONY, find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. That's the place to get it all. Become a supporter, would greatly Greatly appreciate it. This is a story of what we knew about COVID, when, where, why, and how. This is the story of certainly how China, the Communist Chinese Party, cannot be trusted in any way, shape, or form. And this is the story of how criminal Dr. Anthony Fauci was and is and his connection to groups like the World Health Organization should be seen as a red flag to things we should not do. You did not properly warn the world. For the sake of clarity, you purposefully did not warn the world because it would make China look bad and you didn't want that. Now you want to be trusted? No. Let's take a look at what's been happening with the United States and China. But we have to go back in time a little bit. We go back to 2018, a grant proposal, as reported, it was obtained by a group called U.S. Right to Know, it was a freedom of information request. It reveals that there was an American virologist working with the Wuhan lab, you know, where COVID leaked. Now, I, I can't prove it. I admit, I'm clear about this. I can't prove it. If you ask me, of course, this did not come from a, 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 a wet market. Now, wet markets, we may think of them as gross, but jumping, no, it is so much more understandable to say that here is this lab that was working with these coronaviruses and these bats. This lab had a leak because they're communists and they don't know how to do anything, literally nothing. And the, the, the virus leaked, and instead of letting the world know and shutting down China to travel to try and contain it, they let people fly everywhere while they were buying up personal protective equipment, we called it PPE back in the day, and then reselling it to people. They didn't care what happened to the Italians, uh, to, to, the, to the whole of Europe. They didn't care what happened to the United States or, or Southern America, or I should say South America, my apologies there. They didn't care. And when someone said, hey, what's this? They said, how dare you look at us? They flexed their muscles. Screw them. They did this. The World Health Organization covered it up. And in 2018, and it was clear and obvious that there was no trusting the Communist Chinese Party in 2018. Like it was clear and obvious in 2015 and in 2010 and 2005 and 2000 because there's no trusting a communist. You had... Virologists working with the same lab had a plan to engineer a virus that resembled SARS-CoV-2. This is, of course, COVID-19. It was part of a research collaboration between the United States and China called Diffuse. Who was the project led by? EcoHealth Alliance. Who's EcoHealth Alliance? Because you know that name. EcoHealth Alliance received funding from the National Institutes of Health and routed that funding to the Wuhan lab to perform gain-of-function research. Haley Strack with the reporting on that. This is 
more of the reality that our federal government is not thinking. What, for what reason do these doctors have to engage in the gain-of-function research with the communist Chinese? The answer is none. Well, Tony, this way you can keep an eye on them. Keep an eye on them? That did not work out well at all. You do not give the Chinese an advantage, an opportunity. You don't give them technology, they're stealing it anyway. You don't give them intellectual property, they're stealing it anyway. You don't give them this support and you don't fund them. And it was Dr. Anthony Fauci who said he never funded the lab. The money went to his buddy at EcoHealth Alliance. The money then went to the Wuhan Virology Lab. This is what happened. We're not in the place of debate on this subject. And if you ask me, Tony, you sound hot about this. I don't know how I'm not supposed to be. Every day, it seems, maybe it's every month, but every time we talk about this subject, we're, pre- we're presented with more and more evidence of the brutality inflicted upon the people of the world. And then we get people like Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization. That's his first name, by the way. His last name is very, very long, so they call him Dr. Ted or Dr. Tedros. We get confronted with, well, what we need are more checks and systems to keep you locked down. Wouldn't we all be better off if we just didn't fund the commies as they're trying to engage ways to create horrible situations for the rest of us? And wouldn't we be better off if we didn't listen to people who told us they could lock us down? So, yeah, I get hot on the subject. I admit, I admit, but you can't blame me, can you? I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Well, he didn't build hundreds of miles because if there's a board laying on the ground, they say that's a renovation. They call it a renovation. If there's two nails laying from 50 years ago, they say, oh, that was a renovation. These are very dishonest people, and you're always fighting them. And just a little note to Nikki. She's not going to win. But if she did, she would be under investigation by those people in 15 minutes. And I could tell you five reasons why already. Not big reasons, a little stuff that she doesn't want to talk about, but she will be under investigation within minutes. And so would Ron have been, but he decided to get out. He decided to get out. Now, Vivek, I don't think would be at all because he's perfect, right? So that's Donald Trump talking after the victory in New Hampshire. Victorious in New Hampshire like he was victorious in Iowa, the first non-incumbent to win both ever that's a story tony katz great to be with you the question is about that general election and the question is if nikki haley is an afterthought why such an aggressive speech and then well if again it's all going to be about the general 
What is the strategy there? Mark Lauder joins me uh, right now. He's the chief communications officer at AFPI, the America First Policy Institute, served as director of strategic communications for the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign team. A Hoosier, an Indiana guy, uh, spent much uh, of his uh, earlier career with then-Vice President uh, Mike Pence. Uh, Before we get into the specifics of of a general election, to which there are questions, let's talk about... this victory in New Hampshire and how we think uh, did it play out the way Trump's team thought it would? Hey, good morning, uh, Tony. Yeah, I, I think it did. You know, when you look at that margin of victory, it was the largest margin of victory, even bigger than Ronald Reagan in 1980, bigger than George W. when he actually lost New Hampshire uh, to John McCain by large margins. Uh, so it was an overwhelming victory. I do not see a path forward uh, for Nikki Haley right now. I mean, she's not competing in Nevada. And then when you get to South Carolina, her home state, the real clear politics average has her losing by 30. I mean, how do you lose your home state by 30 points and hope to continue? That argument is, of course, the same argument that was utilized on on Marco Rubio and was the end of his uh, presidential uh, campaign. Uh, I think she's hoping for some changes in polling as the days go forward. But let's talk about this spread, the 11 point spread for Donald Trump over Nikki Haley. Trump uh, hit expectations if we take a look at the real clear politics average. Nikki Haley overperformed. Um, Trump's speech last night seemed instead of, hey, let's get that unity thing, what he did after uh, defeating Haley and, and Ron DeSantis in Iowa, it was much more personal, much more uh, ag- aggressive. Shouldn't the take be, hey, unity, I'm clearly the guy, this is clearly happening, let's go to work. Does the overperform by Nikki Haley create a problem for, for Trump world? I don't think so. When you look at when you look at the exit polling, when it was comes to Republican voters, you know, Nikki Haley got less than 25 percent of actual Republicans. She was relying on independents and Democrat leaning independents uh, to try to bring her across the finish line. And well, that's not really going to be the case moving forward. So she, you know, she is a very uphill battle if you can't pull more than 25 percent of registered Republicans in a Republican primary. And and I think this was really more of just kind of like putting your foot down, uh, you know, when you have the lead in the fourth quarter uh, to say this game is over. Let's end it right now. Talking to Mark Lauder, Chief Communications Officer for the America First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. That I, I've been discussing this exact thing uh, today, and it, it it seems obvious that there are a tremendous number of uh, Democrats, progressives, we can call them both or, or, or separate things, uh, that want uh, Trump. They've been gearing up for this, engaging this idea of Trump as dictator, engaging this idea uh, of Trump as a threat to democracy, which I consider all disgusting and despicable things to do. Uh, it's as if they want uh, the country in, in this level of, of frenzy. But there are those who feel that this is the easier lift, the easier beat. And while President Trump talks about, look at the polling, it shows that I beat Biden head to head. The polling shows that Haley does even a better job in, 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 in the head to head. So when you see these independents cross over, does that create issue for thinking that independents want somebody other than Trump? And does that lead to an issue gathering the voters together in a general election, which is far different than a primary? Well, I think the problem the problem for Joe Biden is that he is uh, you know he's so unpopular on all the issues. 
when you look, you know, go through the real clear politics average on issues, his disapproval, 60, 70 percent on every major issue that matters to the American people. And so when it gets to be, you know, a, a true head to head general election matchup, that's what he's going to struggle with you know, in the in, in a Republican primary. You know, obviously, the issue set is just a little bit different. And, you know, the fact that, that Nikki can't pull the Republican primary voter, but she wants to be the nominee of the Republican Party, that's the challenge she faces. I asked about Trump. I didn't ask about Biden, but I loved how you turned that right there. You're a pro, Mark Lauder. The issue for Trump in gather in garnering the independent in a general, is that seen as an issue? And does the Trump team have a philosophy to how to overcome that? Well, yeah, that's that's an actually that's an even easier answer, because the one thing we didn't have in 2020 that Joe Biden didn't have a record. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to you know tag him with the uh, the issues that were created under uh, Barack Obama. You obviously aren't going to go back to his record in the fifth, you know, in the, in the Senate over the last 50 years. Well, he has a record now and it's a record that the people don't like. And so it's an easy contrast. You know, if you go back to that age-old question from Ronald Reagan, are you better off now than you were four years ago? The answer is no. People don't like immigration. They don't like the economy. They don't like inflation. And so it's an easy contrast that I think even a lot of independent, moderate voters are going to go, you know, maybe I don't love his all of his tweets, but I do like $2 a, gas, a gallon gas, and that's what I'm going to vote for. Uh, you would want that. You would you would believe that. Again, I'll say to you, we're not getting to the answer to my question about independents who have been told for the last three years from this horrific press corps that the man is a threat to democracy and overcoming that. What I will agree with you on wholeheartedly, Mark, talking to Mark Lauder, chief communications officer for the American First Policy Institute, is that Biden has issues. Those issues deal with the economy. Those issues deal with the southern border. Those issues are now about Israel. And then, of course, the fact that, you know, as, as President Trump said, he can't string two sentences together. Nikki Haley is trying to make the claim that both Trump and Biden are, are, are too old. It is people on CNN who have noticed or not CNN, but but people on the left who have noticed, hey, they may both be old, but Trump seems much more with it than Joe Biden. If you are the Trump team, are you capitalizing on the idea that Joe Biden isn't OK or are you going to capitalize on the subject matter rather than the man? That just is self-apparent. Yeah, I think you do both. And the good thing is, though, is that if you just let his own performance, his own verbal missteps, his physical appearance speak for itself, many people are making that conclusion on their own. And you can stoke it a little bit and he'll help you do it. But I think ultimately it's going to come down to policies, because obviously I think if we had better policy results, if people weren't worried about the economy and immigration, they really wouldn't care about his age. They would take his fumbles and his bumbles. And I mean, he's long had been full of gaffes and missteps throughout his entire career. Uh, so there, that's nothing new. Uh, but I think ultimately it's those policy results that people don't like. Then they add on the other factors after that. Is the Trump team going to continue to focus on Nikki Haley or act like she's not even there? Go take Nevada, where she really isn't campaigning, now that you bring that up. And then and then South Carolina, where she's in a, a deficit, and just act like this is theirs and focus that way? Or is it going to be a continued hit on Haley uh, all the way through? Well, I think you'll see, you know, again, we've got a month to go until, new, uh, until the South Carolina primary. 
if she truly stays in, and I'm not convinced that she will stay in that entire four weeks, she might give this thing a run for a week or so and then see the numbers aren't moving and be gone. Uh, he'll put his foot down in South Carolina to end it right here, right now, uh, um, you know, a month from now if she waits. But he'll also be talking about Joe Biden. So I think he'll do both at the same time. But there's no way he's going to overlook uh, South Carolina. He's going to want to end this thing right now, not even take it to Super Tuesday. Because, again, that's a lot of money, a lot of advertising that you could be saving uh, to, for Joe Biden rather than having to try to secure up the nomination. And I think that pressure point is going to be a very interesting one to see how Nikki Haley responds to it. Mark Lauder. From the America First Policy Institute Chief Communications Officer, Mark, always a, a pleasure, Indiana guy. We've had many, many a, a conversation. And so I wanted to make sure I, I, I brought you both sides of this, this conversation regarding uh, Trump hitting on Haley. Uh, it, because there's a real argument to be made that says it doesn't make any sense. Don't bother if it's all sewn up, if it's all wrapped up, if it's fait complete, if you have all of this support from within the Republican Party, why are you paying attention to somebody who has no shot, has no chance? Now, the other side of that is uh, an opponent is an opponent, and until you win, you have to beat the opponent. So there are two sides uh, to this. But you can't act like this is all done, this is all set on the nominee, and then say, this person is a threat to me being, being the nominee. It, it does smack a little bit weird. So I wanted to bring you uh, both to that, and Mark Lauder, certainly, uh, from his time uh, with, with Trump, from his time in, in, in the White House, is going to give you uh, that, that point of view. Uh, I also got into this conversation with Noah Rothman uh, over at, at National Review. Now, Noah and I disagree on a great number of things. What I appreciate about him is that he's thinking, and I'm going to bring you that. And what's going on in the Middle East? Specifically, how the Biden administration has not addressed the Houthi threat. Oh, sure, we've got the airstrikes going on now. How did we let it get this far? Those strikes, are they actually working as a level of deterrence? Meaning, what is actually stopping Iran from engaging this war with us as we've been talking about it? My answer is nothing. Nothing's changed. We will break that down. That is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. I don't know if there's any question whether or not Joe Biden's policy in the Middle East has done us damage. Whether Joe Biden's foreign policies in general have done us damage. Let's go back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let us discuss the Chinese weather balloon. Did we forget that we allowed this balloon to traverse the nation? Not only did we allow it, we never got the full story until recently that they knew it. They knew where it was. They knew it was coming. And their objective was to not tell us. It took two guys in Montana who happened to look up in the sky and say, Tommy, Tommy, what is that? I don't know, Paul, he looks like a balloon. Tommy, that's a big-ass balloon, Tommy. I mean, I mean, I've seen some balloons in my days. I've had some birthday parties. That's a big balloon. 
You sure? You really are right. That's a huge balloon. We should call somebody. You know what? You know what? Call Billy down at the police department. He'll know what it is. He'll know what to do. And that's how they figured out there's a damn balloon that came from China. And they knew when it launched and they knew how it traveled and they could have shot it down anytime. Oh, but they couldn't shoot it down over Montana because, as you know, all the people would get harmed. Then you take a look at October 7th. And then you take a look at the Houthi rebels engaging in full on attacks on tankers, on cargo ships, the Iranians are doing the same. And all of a sudden, there's a question about who controls the navigable seas. I'm Tony Katz. As I said, good to be with you. Noah Rothman joins us right now from National Review. Follow him on the exit. Noah uh, C. Rothman, you write about this more uh, than, than than most and, and following uh, a lot of this on, on the national security side and really a, a conversation about foreign policy in, in general. We have had agreements and disagreements. Uh, this w- w- was was you, Joe Biden's provocative weakness. As I understand, you know, you're taking the point or, or, or the position that the biggest issue with Joe Biden's foreign policy is that Joe Biden is unwilling to have a foreign policy that has any concreteness. Am I off base in your understanding? I would amend slightly because I do think Joe Biden has a foreign policy. It's a profoundly dovish foreign policy. I think he is even more so than Barack Obama committed to American retrenchment by which I mean withdrawing from a lot of the traditional commitments that the United States as the global hegemonic power has all over the world. That has been his policy, and that is provocative. I think he has demonstrated a willingness and intention and a, and and actually a, a, a efficacy in executing that imperative, just withdrawing from uh, hotspots in the world or where we have obligations and creating power vacuums in our wake. And that is provocative. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. That which we lose, someone else gains. And a lot of uh, revanchist, revisionist powers, Iran, Russia, a variety of other um, uh, extranational groups, transnational terrorist groups, they see an opportunity, an open window. It's not going to be open forever, and they're making the most of it. So this was an argument made, Noah, uh, when President Barack Obama went on what, what many called that world apology tour, right? He's in Egypt and other places, and he's, he's apologizing for America's actions. He's really apologizing for America's might. And the argument was that while maybe in the United States, that is seen as humility in other cultures, other nations, other uh, political philosophies, that is seen as weakness and something to take advantage of and exploit, I think we have seen that the desire to take advantage of and exploit Joe Biden's weakness, this same exact kind of theory uh, is going on in an unrelenting fashion. I think so. Um, there's something admirable and unique in the American character that it it is an anti-colonial power. It has always been one. It does not want to maintain and preserve foreign possessions, foreign entanglements uh, for the sake of national prestige, as much as a very cynical reading of American foreign policy on the on the far right and in the progressive left uh, believe um, the United States is not an imperial power. It has grand obligations across the, the planet Earth because we were bequeathed that obligation in 1945 
uh, as a result of uh, the where the powers fell in the wake of World War II. It does us no good to bemoan the obligations that we inherited from the British, for example, with regard to, as you said in the, out, in the outset, preserving and guaranteeing the free navigation of trade lanes in, in the seas. That is the responsibility of the global hegemon. And the global economic market, the world market, which has only existed since 1991, this is a pretty new feature. It existed until 1914, took a big long break, and then came back in 1991 and has produced unparalleled prosperity and a dramatic piece, a piece that the world had never previously known. Go look at how many people died in wars prior to the beginning of this century and the end of the 1990s. It was a lot more than we have today. As much as we think this the world right now is is so unstable and there's wars everywhere and people are dying all over the place. That is an ahistorical reading of our current environment. Right now we have an unprecedented level of peace and prosperity across the planet, which has lifted billions of people out of poverty. It's a miracle. And anything that comes after it will be suboptimal relative to our current condition. So it's the sort of thing you should seek to preserve. And Joe Biden has very little interest in doing that. But so so it's funny that you that you phrase it in that way. We have less war now talking to Noah Rothman of National Review. Uh, you should check out his books, including Unjust Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. It's available at Amazon dot com, wherever fine books are sold, because what you would hear politically is withdrawal from Afghanistan. Absolute failure. Got Americans killed and left hardware by the billions for enemies to utilize. Uh, you could not deter uh, Russia from invading uh, U- Ukraine. And that has reached now levels of World War One uh, trench warfare stalemate, that this is going to be a war of attrition involving human bodies that Ukraine has to understand that it cannot win. And now you have Hamas with the attack on Israel on October 7th and through uh, Hamas, through Hezbollah and through the Houthis, you have the United States at war with Iran because Iran is at war with us. Uh, People would look at a very askew at your statement that this has been a peaceful time. Yeah, they're wrong. (laughs) And they're just wrong. I mean, it's an, as I said, it's an ahistorical perspective. Talk about World War One. You know how many people were in the trenches in World War One? Millions. There were millions of people in those trenches in the Somme. And there were millions of casualties in the First and Second World War. Tens of thousands of Americans died in Vietnam over the course of a decade. We've had nothing even remotely approaching that, to say nothing of uh, conflicts in the developing world. Major, major wars between great powers has been something that was almost academic up until very recently, when it has become an existential prospect. Uh, Just if you look at only the body count alone, there's no comparison between the world of the American hegemony that has existed since 1991 and anything that came prior. And if you don't want to just look at casualty figures alone, you can look at GDP, expenditures, um, just the the number of nations that are going to war with each other, nation states. Um, It just, nothing compares so, yes, I understand why people would want to think that they live in the end of history. It's a narcissistic view. It exists only with it can survive only by discounting the record that we all inherited. Uh, and it actually exists to justify a lot of, I think, dangerous policy prescriptions that recommend indeed uh, support 
the kind of retrenchment that Joe Biden is engaged in now. This is not a democratic phenomenon. There are plenty of Republicans. In fact, the oldest species of Republicanism prior to the Reagan revolution was a quasi-isolationism that regarded America's oceans as uh, a guarantee of our ability to remain distant from foreign obligations. Uh, so it's not, it's not right, r- weird for Americans to retreat to that point of view. It's just wrong. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, this this idea of America as the he, uh, the hegemonic power. Uh, I'm going to try and rephrase that a little bit. In well, I can the, define it. I can define it in terms that are like concrete. Let's start like, there. Let, let's start there, and, and we'll see where we go. Global hegemony means um, the United States is the sole superpower, hyperpower. We used to say right in the in the wake of the end of the Cold War, because the United States is the only power on the planet that is capable of projecting sustained force sustained, meaning over the course of months, even years, on the other side of the planet, to a degree that would um, that would affect the kind of foreign policy outcomes that we would want to see, like, for example, remaking the face uh, of a nation state. The French can kind of do that. The British can kind of do that. Eh, not really, really in a sustained way. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians can project power across their borders. Can they project power across the planet Earth? No, they cannot. So that's what I mean by global hegemony. Well, let's now take it maybe as as it's seen under under Biden, because there is no projection. And what we have seen from the Houthi rebels in being able to take cargo ships, uh, take people prisoner, actually kidnap people. And these are not cave dwellers. These are well sophisticated, planned out attacks and the drops from helicopters and, and, and everything else. You're saying that what what Biden believes is in this in this dovish point of view that a level of diplomacy can actually bring these things to heel. And that is the show of American might as opposed to actual American might, which he's engaged in now with the United Kingdom in eight separate uh, uh, air raids, if you will, against the Houthis in Yemen that have produced zero results. So when does he learn that the dovish approach is a valueless one. And have we shown that the hawkish approach has changed anything? Well, I think it's too early to judge what the hawkish approach is. I mean, we do have some signs right now that degrading the Houthis' capability to project power into the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea uh, are actually degrading their ability to project power. It's kind of what you would expect, whether it degrades their willingness to engage in these kind of piratical attacks, for example, and attacks on shipping uh, is another matter. They are well-equipped from Iran, and they show every indication of willing to expend all the all the ordinance that they've been bequeathed by their Iranian sponsors. That's something that we can do something about by taking those those ordinances out. We can't necessarily degrade their ability to uh, execute these attacks if they want to execute them, unless we were willing to put boots on the ground in Yemen. We're not. Uh, but we can partially neutralize the threat to a degree that they just can't execute it. But the Biden administration will be unwilling to do what I think it needs to do, which is to uh, impose uh, more caution on their sponsors and stop the tempo of events, not just in Iraq and in Yemen, rather, but in Syria and Iraq, where U.S. troops and U.S. positions have been under sustained attack since 10-7. Or, this is an Iranian campaign began on 10-7 with, as you say, the, their proxy in Hamas. And the only proxy that has been relatively quiet, and I say relatively advisedly, is the is Hezbollah. Um, and only because we've parked so many naval assets off the coast of the Levant in order to deter them. Deterrence isn't necessarily working against Iran, but it can. Uh, and it usually does when you hit them in the face. Uh, Ronald Reagan dropped a, 
a series of Iranian warships, the bottom of the Persian Gulf in the 1980s. Uh, Donald Trump executed the strike on Soleimani in 2020. And in both occasions, you saw you saw movement from the Iranians that communicate their willingness to de-escalate while just doing some face saving maneuvers like throwing some rockets at us. Uh, but it is nevertheless a de-escalatory posture. There are elements in the Iranian regime that know that if they got into a direct conflict with the United States, the Iranian regime would cease to exist. They don't want that. So they do exercise some caution when the costs of their campaigns become higher than they're willing to absorb. Right now, the benefits of this campaign is to force the United States to move assets around, to demonstrate that they can close off the Suez Canal to commerce whenever they want. Those are a lot of really tangible benefits for the regime. That's, Until we raise the costs, this is going to continue. This, this is my point, that that the all of these actions, the idea that we can punch them in the face and make it stop is predicated on the idea that we're willing to punch them in the face and Joe Biden isn't. Thus, I discuss a, a weak foreign policy. Of course, they clearly do feel that they are emboldened and capable. And it is more than just the United States here. It is the world allowing this to happen. So when we go back to this concept that you bring up about being the world he hegemonic power, I think the only question left is, are we really based on this philosophy, which seems to not only exist within the uh, Biden world, but also exists in serious pockets of the political right? Yeah, I think if we were, if I'd be very charitable. I, I do think there's a, a admirable quality to Americans generally who are reluctant to engage in the kind of behaviors and activities that aren't we need to engage in in order to preserve American geopolitical dominance. I don't think Americans really like having geopolitical dominance. They certainly don't like having obligations abroad, and they don't like being an imperial power. That's good. I mean, that's that's something that is noble and inherent in the American character. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be too abstract about it because I disagree with it. But it is nevertheless a laudable disposition. The problem is that none of our no no other American adversary, either our near peer competitors or rogue states like Iran and North Korea, share that objective or that enterprise. Um, and they make no bones about their willingness to coordinate in the open directly in the form of military exercises, selling each other arms, supporting each other's enterprises, supporting each other's destabilizing activities. They're all engaged in one mission, very overtly, even explicitly, to put an end to the age of American dominance. After that, they can work out all the problems that they have behind the scenes. But the first task is get rid of the United States make it retrench, make it withdraw behind its borders, sacrifice its allies, an ally here, an interest there, an objective there, and all of it culminates in the end of the Pax Americana. Um, that's not something Americans should look forward to. The world that awaits us on the other side of that looks a lot like the world that we got a glimpse of on 10-7. Uh, be before I, I let you go, and, 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 and I want to dig in a little bit, I only got about 60 seconds on the radio side here. Uh, I want to bring you to uh, last night, uh, the primary uh, Trump uh, v. Haley talk about two very different views of the world regarding uh, far, foreign policy. Trump uh, getting the 11 point of victory. Uh, were I uh, your take on whether there is still some rational path for Nikki Haley? Oh, I don't think so. I, I think this primary wraps up pretty quickly. But this is not something that I think Republicans should be celebrating necessarily. And the uh, Republicans who are interested in winning in November, um, New Hampshire looked a lot like the election in 2020 in microcosm. About 75 percent of Republicans turned out for Donald Trump. They made up 49 percent of the electorate and they're thrilled to vote for Trump. He mobilized a very similar uh 
the antonym, you know, the opposite reaction in his opponents, in the small number of Republicans who oppose him, who are dead set against not voting for him in November, by the way, if they mean what they're telling pollsters, and the independents and you know the handful of Democrats who turned out to oppose him. He enthuses the people who oppose him as much, if not more, than the people who support him. I'm going uh, to be a right long there. road to hoe. I'm going to stop you right there. Noah Rothman, National Review. I'm Tony Katz. I went too long, but sometimes it's worth it. Find everything at TonyCats.com if you would. I'm back tomorrow, guys, so we have much more to get to. TonyCats.com. The videos, the podcast, uh, the the, the behind-the-scenes videos, it's all there. Tomorrow, everyone, until then, uh, have a bourbon, a, a, a cigar. Take care. Take care.